Hey, thanks for joining us on the Summit Church Podcast. We want to connect you to a relationship with God and all He has in store for you. We hope this inspires you, strengthens your faith, and gives you hope to live your best days now. Enjoy the message. We've been in a series on going from God's promise through a problem to His provision. And we've made that journey in the past three weeks. We close today with part four on how we claim and experience God's provision. How many of us would really like to experience an explosion of God's blessing? I mean, to enter our destiny, a land flowing with milk and honey, a symbol of our good, blessed life, to receive houses you didn't build, wells you didn't dig, vineyards you didn't plant, and all your enemies defeated. You'll always have enemies, but they get defeated. Well, the good news is that is God's will for all of us who are believers. I'm reading from Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy 7, verse 22 through 24. And God says, The Lord your God will drive those nations out ahead of you little by little. You will not clear them away all at once. If you did, the wild animals would multiply. Let me stop right there. When it says wild animals, uh, he's not talking about squirrels and wolves because watch what he says. They would multiply too quickly for you, but the Lord your God will hand them over to you. He will throw them into complete confusion. See, he's not talking about squirrels and foxes and wolves. That's symbolic for the enemy. He's talking now about pagans and pagan nations representing to us in the New Testament our enemy, our adversaries. I will throw them in confusion until they are destroyed. God will put their kings in your power, and you will erase their names from the face of the earth. No one will be able to stand against you, and you will destroy them all. So God says, I'm not just going to give you the land. I'm going to destroy your enemies before you, but I'm going to do it little by little. Now, that's God's blueprint for your life and mine. And I want everybody here and watching online to be able to claim that and prepare yourself for it. So let me do a review if you haven't been here the last three weeks. These are just quick. You'll have to get the CDs or go to the podcast to catch up. Number one, everything God offers us comes in a promise form. God promised to deliver Israel out of Egypt, to bring them into a land flowing with milk and honey. That was the promise. Salvation is a promise. If you call on my name, I'll save you. Healing is a promise. Prosperity, good success is a promise of God. Second, then God delivered Israel out of Egypt and led them into the wilderness, which is the problem. They stay in the problem 40 years before they enter the provision of God, which was a land flowing with milk and honey. Third, between the promise and the provision, God allows a problem. How you conduct yourself in the problem determines how long you stay in that problem. Israel stayed 40 years, bought real estate. Jesus stayed 40 days. Don't camp where you are. Keep climbing. What's the difference between 40 years and 40 days? Simple. How you conduct yourself in the problem. Every time Israel was given a chance to obey the Lord, they refused to obey. And God says, okay, take another lap around the Sinai. 
Let's say God gives you a promise to save your child, and you respond with great joy, and your son is a rebel, but you expect good things because you've got a promise from God that that child will be saved. And he comes home at night and stumbles through the front door drunk. What's that? That's a problem. Now, the wrong reaction sounds like this. Well, God never hears my prayers. Whine, whine, whine. Where's God when you really need him? I thought my son would come home like Billy Graham, not Willie Nelson. And, and God says, okay, take another lap around the mountain. Now, the right reaction would be God promised, I believe it. God cannot lie. He is faithful, so I am not moved by what I see or current circumstances. But what God has promised, I'm standing on the promise of God. God's in control, and I know ultimately everything's going to be all right. That's the right response. See, your reaction to the problem is based on your conviction, not your circumstances or emotion. Don't allow your emotions to dictate your future. Allow God's Word, which is the solid rock of our faith and the foundation of your future. Since his word never changes, I'm going to build right on that. And I have all kinds of emotions. My emotions change three or four times a day. How about you? If I drive, they really change, but they change depending on what information comes in, up and down, up and down. One morning, one morning a wife said to her husband as he's leaving for work, I bet you don't know what day it is. He said, well, of course I do. At 11 a.m. that morning, a delivery boy knocked on her door and hands his wife two dozen roses. At 2 p.m., a box of her favorite chocolates arrived. At 5 p.m., a designer dress was delivered to her door. Well, the husband comes home beaming and grinning ear to ear. And the wife says, well, George, first the flowers, then the chocolates, then the dress. It's the most wonderful groundhog day I've ever had. Men, at least look at your calendar. <laughs> Number four, we said the bigger the promise, the bigger the problem. A million-dollar promise produces a million-dollar problem. To whom much is given, much shall be required. There's no $10 problem for a million-dollar promise. Number five, you'll be known by the problems you solve or the problems you create. Your destiny, your future, your level of success is riveted to that one thing. Sixth, we said the problem that irritates you the most is usually the problem God assigns you to solve. Number seven, we said how you see the problem is the problem. Number eight, we spoke briefly about temptation, how God tests us. Now, why does God test us? He tests us to see what's inside of you. Now, he knows what's inside of me, but I don't know. But I'll find out in a test. Now, God never tempts you to do evil. That's clear scripture. So when it uses the word tempt, a better word is test. When it says God tempted someone, it just means God withdraws your consciousness of his presence. In other words, he's there, but you're not conscious of it. You can see it on the cross when Jesus said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Well, God hadn't forsaken Jesus. His omnipresence was there, but the God-man Jesus was not aware of the consciousness of his Father's presence at that moment. I'll, let me put it this way. Ever feel like 
God was a million miles away. That's a little bit of what that, that means. Now, God isn't a million miles away. He said, I'll never leave you or forsake you, but you don't feel that, right? Let me tell you, the eyes of God are never more on you than at that moment. He's watching to see what you're going to do. In Genesis 22, verse 1, it says, God tempted or tested Abraham. God says, take your only son Isaac to the land of Moriah, and I want you to sacrifice him to prove to me you love me above all else. So, oh, Abraham rose up early in the morning and journeyed to the place God told him. And I imagine, like any father with his emotions running wild, he's 100 years old. He's waited for a miracle, kid. His wife's 90, and God gives him a miracle. Now God says, okay, give him to me. Can you imagine how you'd feel? But Abraham forced his emotions to obey the word of God. Don't let your emotions drive you. Road rage is out of control in this country. There's articles on it right now. People snap over anything. Chill. Calm down. Get a grip. Don't be led by your emotions or you'll end up in the ditch. Don't do it. In that moment, as he obeyed, he became the father of all who believe. God then withdrew the consciousness of his presence from old Abraham to see what he would do. And in the problem, Abraham obeyed instantly. See, here's a good question. How about you? Can you see that God leads you into the problem, then steps back to see how you're going to respond? Look at some of the kinds of temptations or testings God allows. For example, how about money? Jesus gave us some 38 parables in the New Testament. 16 of them deal with money. There's more said about money and possessions than heaven and hell combined. There are 500 verses on prayer and faith, over 2,000 dealing with money and possessions. Why? Because it's vital to your life and to the lives of your children, and he knows that. The Department of Social Security reported that 85 out of 100 Americans have less than $250 in the bank when they reach 65 years of age. They said that fewer men are worth $100 at the age of 68 than they were at age 18. That means they worked 50 years and were not able to save $2 a year. Amazing. In Malachi 3, God cursed Israel with a curse for robbing him of tithes and offerings. He said, you have stolen from me. And many believers will die in a financial problem because they simply are not willing and obedient to obey God's word. Debt is doing everything but tithing, D-E-B-T. Now remember, God does want, want to bless you, and it's a trust factor there. Why did Jesus give Judas the money bag? He was treasurer. I mean, Jesus is omniscient. He knew everything in a man's heart. He gave the money bag to Judas because he knew Judas had a problem with money, with greed. And he wanted Judas to come face to face with the cancer of his soul and in the final analysis, old Judas sold the Son of God for 30 pieces of silver and for some stock in Twitter because he couldn't master the money problem. And if you don't, you'll die in the problem. God loves you. You can go to heaven, 
but you're not going to get out of that problem. You bring home, you bring home much, and it comes to less. You have money bag, but it's got holes in it. Read Hosea chapter 1. It's amazing. God says, you, you won't honor my house, honor me by honoring my house. Therefore, I'm not going to honor you. So the enemy plunders. You make a big income, but you don't have enough. Where does it go? It just disappears. The enemy just steals it. Or you're, he compares you to a money bag, got holes in it, and you never have enough, although you make a great income. Now, God gives that command to believers, not, a, not an unbeliever. This is, these are instructions for us on how to handle provision and keep the enemy away from it because God does love you and want to bless you. But he knows the treasure is the key to your heart, and where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. Well, not where your mouth is, where your treasure is. Now, God loves you. Of course he does. But will you die short of his provision? It happens all the time. Because if you can't handle a little bit, how will you handle much? In Luke 16, he said, if you're unfaithful with a little, you'll be unfaithful if you win the $400 million lotto. But I won't, Lord, and I hope you'll let me. We'll be debt-free, folks, and a gym will be going up out there. I've asked the Lord all the time, go ahead, test me, test me. I'm ready. I've walked this way a long time. I'm not going to end up with 14 cars and 16 houses and four jets. Now, we'll have a great gymnasium with classrooms, and we can do a lot for other people and other ministries that serve the poor and the needy in other places. I don't need another car. You know what? <laughs> I, think it was, I think it was some entertainer who bought, had about 13 luxury cars because he was doing so well, and his daddy said, Son, you can only put your rear end in one car at a time. You don't need that many cars. Now, what you don't learn will ultimately master you. Isn't that true? What you can tolerate, you'll never change. You may not like it, but you can tolerate it. And as long as you can tolerate it, it will continue to master you. Nothing will change. You've got to get sick and tired of being sick and tired. And when that happens, change can occur. Then God not only tests your finances, he'll test your emotional life. If you pass the test, you'll enter into the provisions of God. Otherwise, you stay in a problem. Take Moses, for example, a great leader, but he was a, a passionate man who had a temper problem. Anybody out there got a temper problem? God told him to deal with it. And when we first see Moses, he kills an Egyptian. So he fails, test number one. Then God sent him to the backside of the desert for 40 years to the school of anger management. And I, I was... <laughs> I'm not going to say that. And Moses came back and became leader of several million people. I don't know, but that'll test your fiber to the core. Several million people? Moses was always wanting to hit or kill somebody. That give you a little idea. Dealing with people is hard. Well, he comes down from Mount Sinai where he had just spoken to God face to face. He comes down with the Ten Commandments, and he sees the people worshiping a golden calf they have voted in Aaron as the pastor, and they're having a sex orgy, and Moses is outraged. He throws the stone tablets down. He breaks them, so he fails test number two. The third test, Moses is instructed to strike the rock once. Afterwards, only speak to it if you're going to get water, right? But he struck it twice in anger against Israel. Now, had he struck it only once, Israel would have said the water came from God. But because he struck it twice, Israel saw Moses as the provider. 
So God refused to allow Moses to enter the promised land. God did allow him to see it, but he could not enter it. You see how this cost him his destiny? He's, he's in heaven. It's not about going to heaven. It's about what you lose in the promise of God, the provision he wants for you, because you didn't take control of that emotion. So Moses died in the wilderness, in the problem, so close to the provision because he couldn't handle <coughs> the anger problem. Anger will destroy your marriage, your business career, your relationships, and your children. It'll make you an eternal prisoner in an emotional hell. Now, anger might not be your problem. Maybe it's greed. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's uh, pornography, fear, selfish ambition. But when God comes to you and tells you to deal with it, that's not a suggestion. <laughs> you, you better deal with it. If you don't, you'll stay and die in the problem and never get to the provision of your promised land. So when God tests the man, he gives you a promise, some instruction from his word. Then he removes your consciousness of his presence to see what's in your self-life. How can we tempt God? Well, in Judges 6, Israel has been conquered by the Midianites. And when they see Israel harvesting their crops, well, they come down and steal the crops from them, leaving the Israelites to starve. So a guy named Gideon is hiding while he threshes a little bit of wheat inside a wine press. He doesn't want the Midianites to see him and take his little bit. And the angel of God appears to him and says, Hail, O mighty man of valor, surely God is with you, and you shall smite the Midianites. Remember, when God speaks to you, he doesn't speak to you about your past. He speaks to you about your future. Because right now, he doesn't look like much of a mighty warrior, right? That's what God calls him. He says, it's in you. It's just not out yet. What's in you that needs to come out? In Judges 6, verse 36, here's old Gideon. Lord, if you really meant what you said, tonight let my sheepskin, my fleece, be wet and the ground dry. And God did. Well, then old Gideon says, well, Lord, if you really, really meant what you told me, then tonight reverse the sign. Let my fleece be dry and the ground be wet. And God did. And even then, he doesn't want to do it. See, when you're in the midst of a problem, you better stand on God's word. That's, that's it. No need to ask for a sign. Now, my reason for saying this is Jesus, when he was in the problem, said, it is written, it is written. Well, Gideon didn't have the word of God. There was no Bible, nothing. So God was very gracious. We have, we've got books of the Bible of God's word covering anything of significance about our lives. So I have to ask myself, who's my example, Gideon or Jesus? See, I'm going to stand on God's word. I don't need a fleece. When God gives you a clear scripture, clear leading, you stand on that word. When Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, Jesus didn't lay down on the ground and say, Father, give me a sign. He declared God's word. See, if all it takes to deceive you is a sign, the devil can give you plenty of signs. Remember Moses went in before Pharaoh, threw his rod down, it became a snake. And two Pharaoh's magicians came in, they threw theirs down, they became serpents too. But Moses' snake ate their snakes. That's a good time to sing, I feel like traveling on. <laughs> All them snakes going on. So quit waiting for a sign. 
Stand on God's word. Refuse to be controlled by your emotions. Be controlled by what God said in his word. And don't be led by fleeces. Be led by God's clear scripture. In Romans 14, Paul writes, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. So in the New Testament, we don't need a fleece. We have the never-failing promises of God. And God's promises say you're going to have houses you didn't build, wells you didn't dig, vineyards you didn't plant. God says he will send his angels before you and behind you. God has said that you are more than a conqueror through Christ, that he's going to give you the power to kick the giant off your territory, the power to stand and enter the promised land. So come on, folks, face your problem, whip that problem, and walk into the land flowing with milk and honey, your destiny with God's power. You do it by the power of God in your life. He's delegated authority to you. He's given you power of attorney to sign, act, and speak in his name. He said, whatever you bind on earth, I'll bind it in heaven. He says, life and death are in the power of the tongue. I give you power to use my name. Use it. I don't care what the government's name is. Use Jesus. The devil hates that name Jesus. I love it. Throw it around a lot. Throw it at every obstacle to your purpose or your destiny. Remember, the enemy hates it. The demons believe in God, and they tremble at his name. So how do I enter my promised land? Deuteronomy 7, verse 22. You ought to put this on your refrigerator. You shall enter the land little by little. This is not overnight. It's a process. How did George Mueller come to take care of 2,500 orphans as a 90-year-old man? And he never asked anybody for help. He never asked a church for help. One day he passed an orphanage as a young man. He was moved by the hand of a little girl reaching through a picket fence. And he said, God, help me to do something. Now, in those days, if you can imagine, criminals, lunatics, and the insane and orphans were put in the same facility. So one at a time, he took them out. Two, four, eight, 10, 12, 50, 100, 200, 1,000, 2,500. He raised, clothed, fed, and educated every single one of them out of his own resources. So what he had said to God was this, if you'll pay the bill, I'll take care of these children. You ought to Google George Mueller and read this story. Probably one of the greatest stories of faith to ever come out of Europe. How did he do it? Little by little. He didn't get it in all at once in one day. How does our church grow from a small room in a hotel? Little by little. See, how are you going to come into your destiny, your promised land? Better health, prosperity, get out of debt, little by little. See, I, I promise you great disappointment if you swallow up this idea of get rich quick. People who pursue that idea, even in the Bible, scripture after scripture says they get hurt and they come to sorrow. It's little by little, and it requires work. How are you going to solve your marriage problem? Little by little. You screwed it up for 15 years, Sparky. You're not going to get it right in 15 minutes. You came forward and got prayer, and when you go back to your chair, she still hates your guts. You're going to have to win that trust, affection, little by little. How will you conquer an emotional problem? Little by little. How are you going to get off the critical list at Weight Watchers? Little 
by little. There ain't no magic pill. It's little by little. Now, let me give you some principles to close for entering the land and trusting that God will speak to you maybe about one in your own life. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 5 through 7. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. So let's look at what he says. Number one, add to your faith. That means there's more to Christianity than going to heaven. If that's all you've done in 20 years, you're as useless as a side saddle on a pig. (laughs) Christianity is a continuous growth process. It's a lot more than saying, God bless us, Acts 2, 4, and no more. God expects you to grow and do something. And too many believers are proud of what they don't do. We don't smoke, we don't drink, and we don't run with those who do. Well, whoopee, a telephone pole can say that. What have you done? He said, add to your faith. Grow up, mature. There's more to God than you know about. So learn and grow. And that's how we get transformed, little by little by little. Secondly, add diligence. Do it well. Every job you do is a portrait of the person who does it. If you do a sloppy job, you're sloppy. Give it all you got. And then give it a little bit more. That's called the second mile. Do it right. Do it right the first time. And do it with everything you've got or don't do it. I was, I was telling Cindy the other day, we've had, over the years, we've had windows cleaned and we've had people clean our metal roof of that yellow color from the oak pollen. Anybody else get that on your roof? Yeah. So they, gotta, you, they use every hose I've got plus their hoses. And I got hoses all around the house and I roll them up all nice and neat. And every time I came home, they're everywhere. Nobody rolled them back up. Nobody put anything back where it goes. So after a few years, we just got the yard fertilized and and the company that did it, I came home and of course they were helping water stuff in. Every hose was out. So I knew what to expect. I thought I'm going to have to get out and roll all those hoses back up around the house. But to my shock, They were all coiled neatly right where they were supposed to be. I was stunned. And that company is is owned by our own Tim Beck. And his people were excellent, second milers, cleaned up all mess, and it looked better than I had it. And I just thought, man, I love that. They did it right. They did it right the first time. Diligent. Do you? Don't tell your neighbors you're a Christian if your yard looks like a weed patch. We got a neighbor that looks like Fred Sanford. I mean, it's a junkie. Broke down cars since the day we built our house and moved in. Weed patch, stuff hanging off. It is a mess. And I'm thinking, I can't live that way. I'm going to clean that yard up. I pray they'll move. I wish I had the money, I'd buy it and bulldoze the whole thing down and, and then just put the lot up for sale. They just tear down the value of, your, of, of everything. Be somebody that adds value to your neighborhood. Surely you, you could take pride in your yard a little bit. If the screen's coming off your front door, fix it. Don't put duct tape on it, fix it. Be diligent when you do something. 
Pay attention to details and persist until you finish the job and you do it right. Don't send it back if it's not right. Third, add faith. Without faith, Scripture says, it's impossible to please God. Faith doesn't demand miracles. Faith creates miracles. Faith is not an emotion. Faith is not a feeling. Faith is knowing what God can do and believing he will do it. My emotions are all over the place. I can't go by that. I go by what God said. It is written, it is written, it is written. And I quote it out loud in every problem we face. And I do it multiple times. Walking down the hall, driving the car somewhere, over and over, taking the dog Lily out. I'll be shouting. That dog is the most prayed up dog in our neighborhood. She's heard me declare everything Scripture says. Emotion, it won't heal a sick person, but the prayer of faith can walk into a sick room and snatch that person back from the grave. And if you haven't believed God to heal a headache, don't try cancer. And if you've never trusted God with 100 bucks, don't even think about a $100,000 problem. The good news is that faith can grow and develop and become strong. And how does that happen? Through tests and trials. See, use it for heaven's sake. You can't build muscle if you don't push any weight. You can't grow in faith if you don't face any tests. So get over in this world, you shall have tribulation. Jesus promised it. But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. How did you get to have such strong faith? Lots of problems. And as you solve them, you get better, you get smarter, you get stronger. You start believing God easily for more things. You kill a lion, then you kill a bear, and then Goliath is no big problem to you. See how God does it little by little by little? And then fourth, add virtue, he says. Virtue is power. When touched by a woman who was never sick, I mean very sick, just horrible, she had spent all she had on doctors and was no better She touched Jesus, and he said, I perceive virtue has gone out of me. Power. There's power in Jesus' name. There's power in his blood. There's power in the gospel. Paul said in the last days there'd be a false gospel. Oh, it has a form of godliness, religious, but it denies the power of God. We believe in the power of God, power to heal, power to deliver, power to take you out of addiction, power to restore what has been lost and bring back something even better, restore marriages, bring healing in a, in a physical body to prosper you, to get you out of debt. Without that power, we might as well just be a Tupperware club here. We used, we used to sing a hymn, remember back in the old days, all hail the power of Jesus' name. There is power in that name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. So the gospel of Christ has the power to change a man and bring life into a dead soul. Number five, add knowledge. James 1 verse 5 said, any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives liberally and will not withhold. Sometimes you can read the Bible, read a book, talk to somebody with wisdom beyond you, and get good advice. You can get wisdom. You can learn wisdom. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, hey, study to show yourself approved as a workman that doesn't need to be ashamed, correctly dividing the Word of God. And I think if some people knew as much of God's Word as they do sports, business, or politics, they'd have a lot more good results in their life. Amen. Six, add self-control. Alexander the Great conquered the known world, but he couldn't conquer himself. Samson conquered the Philistines, 
He ripped the mouth of a lion like tissue paper, but he couldn't control his own lusts. Proverbs 16, verse 32 says, He who rules his own spirit is stronger than the man who takes a city. So we applaud generals who conquer nations. God applauds a man or woman who can conquer themselves. That's a strong person. God said, say, your biggest problem is you. My biggest problem is Rick. It's what's inside more than what's outside. Wouldn't that be fair to say? Yeah, I got to conquer me. And seven, add patience. Patience is the word in King James for endurance. Endurance. That's a, these people that run marathons, what you need is endurance. If you go on a 100-yard dash, you, you, you need muscle, and you, and you will find all of them have large thighs, very muscular, because they only need a short burst of speed. But all of your endurance runners are reasonably slim because they've got to go the long haul, right? And some of you have no clue because you hadn't walked past the driveway. Okay, I understand. I understand. Here's what he says in Hebrews 10. You have need of endurance that after you've done the will of God, you might get the promise. In other words, it's not overnight. Remember, it's little by little. You need endurance. Stay with it. Hold on. Don't quit. If you're going to reach the promised land, it'll be because there's not an ounce of quit in you. And I guarantee you for all of us, there are going to be times in your life, your marriage, your business, your vision, your ministry, when quit looks good, right? Has quit ever looked good to you? Yeah. When the giants seem unbeatable, when mountains seem unmovable, when defeat looks inescapable. But I always remember winners don't quit and quitters never win. You're never going to win if you quit. Quitting is murdering your opportunities. And eight, he says, add godliness. That means impartiality. How can you tell how far you've come in your spiritual development? By the way, you treat your enemies. Jesus' last act on the cross was to forgive those who were behind his execution while they were doing it. That's godliness. He said, Father, forgive them. He didn't say, I'll get you when I come back. Did he? Number nine and last, add brotherly kindness. Now, what's the difference between brotherly kindness and love? Brotherly kindness is loving somebody who loves you. See, love is loving somebody who doesn't like you and being kind, although they don't like you, don't wish good things for you. Matthew 5, verse 46, Jesus said, if you love those who love you, what reward is there? Even the tax collectors do that. <coughs> Big deal. <coughs> you can know you're ready to step into God's provision when you can love the person that dislikes you. Jesus did it, and he's our example. So the question is, am I ready to enter the land of provision? That means you're going to have to conquer what's in you and to conquer what God has revealed to you about you before he gives you that kind of abundance. Thanks again for joining us. If you enjoy the podcast, be sure to subscribe and share it with a friend. You can hear more messages by visiting summitsa.com.